Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Hello and welcome to this first episode of Season 2 of Mac 1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills, I am a QAM volunteer and I will be your host for this very British episode of Mac 1. Have a listen to this sound. Thank you to my mate Andrew, who put me on to this. Um, Fascinating sound. In my conversation this week with our guest, you're going to hear what that sound is and where it comes from, what causes it. In a moment, you'll hear me talking with John Lloyd, who flew for the RAF. Fascinating aircraft that he flew, a fascinating career that he's had. A true gentleman, and it was great to be able to speak with him. Just before you hear from John, let me tell you that you can access uh, photos and videos and whatever else accompanies these episodes if you'd like to have a look at them at the Mac One Hanger, which is on WordPress. You can search for Mac One Hanger, all one word, or you could look on the Queensland Air Museum website under Podcasts, and that's where you will find all of the episodes. And you will also find a link to the Mac One Hangar. We'd love to hear your comments. You can leave comments there. Uh, constructive, of course. I'm sure they will be, knowing our listeners. And I would love to hear from you, especially if you have questions or you would like us to follow a particular topic or interview a particular person. Please, uh, you're very welcome to give us your comments and your feedback there. I recorded this episode in the brand new, or let's say it's not quite finished yet, QAM studio. Thanks to a grant from the Sunshine Coast Council, we have been able to set ourselves up with proper recording equipment. Eventually, we hope to have video recording equipment as well, so that these conversations can be recorded both on video and audio. And uh, we've been able to carve out a space in a little dedicated uh, corner office on the museum property in which we are able to make these recordings happen. And of course, with John Lloyd's voice, you know, you could just listen to that and and, uh, never end. He has the, the, uh, the delightful, smooth British tones, and you'll hear in a moment. So thank you for joining us. This is me talking with QAM volunteer and guide, John Lloyd. G'day, John. Hello, Gary. So good of you to join me. Now, John, you are squadron leader RAF retired. That's correct, yes. And you're now a volunteer at the QAM. What days do you come in and and what do you do here? I come in on Tuesdays and uh, spend the the whole day with, with people who come in. Do you enjoy that? Yes, I certainly do. It's important for our listeners to remember that our guides don't charge anything. They're all volunteers and they're standing by here pretty much one or two of them every day. 
And if you come in and you have specific questions or a specific interest, they'll be able to direct you. And if you have a very general interest also, they can just guide you around the collection and give you some background and, and make these make these uh, aircraft come to life with the stories uh, that go with them. So, John, w- what if you tell us where you're from and what's your background in aviation? Okay, I was born and brought up in Kenya in East Africa uh, and did my whole education out there. And... Uh, of course, grew up in the aftermath of World War Two with Douglas Bader and the Dam Busters and all that side of things, which were the heroes that we lived with. And it was uh, in 1949, I think, I had my first ride in a, a Fox Moth, just a quick 10-minute flip. And uh, I think that decided me that I wanted to fly. Now, for our listeners, that's a biplane, a trainer, is it? Yes, it was based on the Tiger Moth, mm-hmm. and it was a Tiger Moth with a cabin, basically. Uh, In 1960, I was selected uh, to go and join the Royal Air Force. Uh, So I went across to the UK and did my basic training and uh, on the Jet Provost. Now explain that. The Jet Provost was uh, the beginning of the all-through jet training in the Royal Air Force. And uh, so we got our our initial training on that. And then I went on to the Vampire, uh, the two-seat Vampire, which was a version of the Vampire Fighter, which was the second British fighter of World War II. Uh, That's jet fighter. And then ended up by finishing my training and being selected to fly helicopters. And how many years did you serve? I did 18 years. Okay. Do you have a total number of hours uh, in the air? Yes, my total number of hours is just over Mm 18,000. Okay, well, let's talk about some of those. Um, The uh, experience of being an officer and um, a, a pilot in the RAF during the 1950s and 60s? 60s, yes. 60s, and into the 70s? Uh, Yes, I left, I I did 18 years in the RAF, and it was uh, in that 18 years, there was a a huge change in the way that the British government was actually running itself. Uh, Basically, uh, there was a withdrawal from east of Suez, so the definition and, and the responsibilities of the RAF changed accordingly. From what to what? From being a colonial empire. Uh, it then focused its attention on uh, the, the real threat in Europe, uh, which was the USSR. What's now called the Cold War. Yes. And in what countries did you serve? Well, I had the great good fortune of doing 18 years, but 10 years of those were overseas. Uh, so I started my service in, in, uh, on search and rescue helicopters uh, in Libya at a base just south of Tobruk, of course very famous for the desert rats. And uh, that's, that was flying a Sycamore, which was um, a British-designed uh, helicopter. It was the first British-designed helicopter. Uh, and at the end of that, after my two years out there, uh, I was selected to go back to Central Flying School helicopters and I instructed for three years. That was on the Bell 47. Now, the, um, the Sycamore, this is a... Just describe that to us. What sort of aircraft was that? OK, it was... Um, it had a cabin which could uh, seat five people, um, but it was adapted for the RAF uh, as a, um, a communications helicopter, search and rescue helicopter. And then it was also used in the Far East for search and rescue and dropping troops into the jungle in Malaya. And was it used for maritime search and rescue? Yes. It was? So 
you could lower uh, life vests and, and drop boys and all that kind of thing? Indeed. Um, it was actually quite a dangerous helicopter for the winchman because he had to go down the winch with a throat mic on. and That was uh, a drum which was co-located with the winch drum. Uh, and he had to actually direct the pilot from uh, the sea uh, with his throat mic, which often shorted out. So it could cause quite a lot of interesting situations, really. Yeah. And did you have some search and rescue missions that, that uh, resulted in saving lives? Yes, but not. I didn't do any uh, rescue at sea. The uh, British Army in, in Libya was very active in doing uh, big exercises, military exercises in the Libyan desert because of the agreement that the British government had with the Libyan government. We were very uh, pro-British at the time. So it was much better to go and practice uh, with your tanks in the desert than it was in the confines of the UK. So uh, a significant number of the rescues that I did were injured uh, soldiers, uh, one form or another. And then you became an instructor in helicopters back mm -hmm. in the UK. Yep. Okay. Now, the skills that you picked up uh, as a helicopter pilot and instructor, I believe, translate in some form to the skills required to fly the Hawker Sidley Harrier hump jump jets, the vertical and horizontal flight. Is that correct? Um, yes. The, the Harrier flies in a very different format from, from a, a helicopter. Mm. It's basically a very big engine it produces 21,000 pounds of thrust, and you direct that thrust vertically downwards to give you a vertical takeoff capability, or short takeoff and landing, which is what it was actually designed to do. That's the Pegasus, the Rolls-Royce Pegasus. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Let's come to the Harriers in a moment. Uh, before we leave the helicopters, um, why would you transition then from helicopters to jets? What, what happened to lead you to the Hunters? Well, when I joined the Air Force, all I wanted to do was become a fighter pilot. And when they sent me on helicopters, of course, uh, my world was not only go slowing down, but it was going backwards being on helicopters. But nevertheless, uh, as a combination of very good instructors, uh, I came to enjoy flying them. But I did make quite a lot of a nuisance of myself during the years intervening when I was flying them operationally to get on to fighters. And eventually the Air Force saw my point of view uh, after I'd resigned a couple of times uh, and they allowed me then to go on to the Hunter. The Hunter was originally designed as an interceptor uh, but by the time I went on to it, it was used for lead-in training to the Lightning and the Buccaneer which were then the frontline fighters or aircraft in the RAF um, and we also had one squadron at, or a couple of squadrons at that stage uh, doing ground attack because after the thing had finished being used as an interceptor, it proved itself to be a very effective ground attack weapon. So um, I was on the, the last operational squadron in the Far East, which was number 20 squadron, and I went out there just at the tail end of what Britain was doing in this part of the world, before those aircraft were actually handed over to the Singaporean armed forces. And would it be fair to say that this was towards the end of the serviceable life of the Hunters? Um, surprisingly not. It was probably the most successful British fighter of the post-war era. Uh, so, and, and it was it was a highly successful ground attack weapon. And of course we used it very successfully in Aden and during the insurgency there. And then later on uh, it was used in Bahrain. Our particular aircraft here was one of the reasons why I came to the museum 
when I discovered that it had actually been used in Bahrain, and I contacted an old friend of mine who uh, was out there, and it transpired that he'd actually flown this one. So um, when he came down to visit, he was living in Hong Kong, uh, I brought him here to see it, and as a consequence of that, I met Peter Grouder and, and David Dunlop, a couple of our remarkable guides here, and they suggested that I should come and try a bit of guiding. And that's QAM's gain, that's for sure. So now we have two hunters here. Yes. What's the difference between them? Um, the, the one in the uh, forecourt here the, is the Mark Nine, which was the last of the, um, the design series. The one in the, in the background is the Hunter 4, which had a, a very different wing. Uh, and the aircraft was modified up to become such a remarkable success because of, of the, what they achieved with the Hunter 9. And it had a sawtooth edge and, and so on. And sawtooth edge? Yes, it, it was a, um, a feature that uh, stopped the aircraft from pitching up at very high angles of attack um, so that you, you didn't lose it in, in uh, combat, basically. Okay, so that's what it did, but what, what is it? What is the sawtooth edge? Is that a physical design feature, or what is it? Yes, it's on the surface of the wing. It looks like a, a, a sawtooth. Exactly, hence the name, yeah. And it protrudes from the uh, leading edge of the wing, and it forms a vortex, uh, which helps to uh, re-energise the boundary layer and keep the air trapped on the wing, and oh. stops the air from actually trying to, to flow inboard, which was what... The reason was for the aircraft actually stalling out. That's a very good description. To a civilian like me, that makes a lot of sense. So it helped to stabilise the aircraft and it, it affected the airflow over the wing, basically. That's correct, yes. Was the Hunter supersonic? It, you could get it supersonic in a dive, but of course, it, when you talk about an aircraft being supersonic, uh, you need those speed features to be able to use it in combat. Um, Diving the aircraft vertically at the earth doesn't really do <laughs> doesn't help anybody, it. <laughs> does it? I'm going to play you a sound, and I'd like you to tell me what it is and and why it is, if you, if you would. So here we go. What is that? <laughs> That's the hunter at speed. Some people call it the blue note. The blue um, note, yes. But uh, when you listen to it, I mean, you've got that ripping sound, which of course is what an aircraft makes when it gets close to the speed of sound. And you've got the engine note, which is uh, a function of the uh, sonic uh, effects of the jet pipe and the wonderful Avon engine, of course. And you that, that sound would be achieved not in a dive, but in... In horizontal, in level flight. Yes, the the hunter actually uh, held a speed world re world speed record in 1951, but uh, th that was in a, a very specially modified version. Yeah. I can imagine how terrifying that sound would be if 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 it was coming towards me, you know, as an act of aggression. Um, but I can also imagine at an air show what a smile that would put on people's faces. It is such a unique sound, isn't it? Well, I think that the great thing about it, Gary, is that generally speaking, it's when the aircraft is uh, right over the top of you or gone past you. You don't hear it when it's coming. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't hear it coming. No, but I'd need a cup of tea and a lie down after it flew overhead, I think, personally. 
Now, I've heard stories from some of our former Mirage pilots here about exercises between hunters and RAAF Mirages. Um, tell us about that a little bit. Yes, uh, the Mirage is, is the first, uh, one of the uh, second century series of, of fighters, really, that uh, was capable of supersonic flight. And um, it uh, sustained supersonic flight. And the wing was constructed in such a way to enable the aircraft to fight in that regime. Um, that's the delta shape. That's the delta shape. And, and it had uh, a terrific capability at the, at the very high-speed regimes. Now, the Hunter was actually a subsonic aircraft, and the wing was optimized for that. And you could fly the, the Hunter down to very low speeds, and you could turn it very uh, smoothly at very low speeds. If a Mirage decided that it wanted to stay with you in a turning fight, um, then they were inevitably going to lose because they, they had a very high drag ratio at that stage and they couldn't actually manoeuvre with the hunter down there. The, so the only way that a Mirage really needed to operate was to do a diving attack and, and then go supersonic and get out of it. But to stay and try and fight with the hunter was, just didn't work for them. Isn't that interesting? I mean, speed isn't everything, is it? Oh, no. no. Absolutely. And I suppose the RAF and the RAAF had, uh, the, you know, the understandable <laughs> levels of competition in these exercises. Inevitable. Inevitable, yes. We, we, Did the hunters always beat the mirages? If they stayed and, and tried to turn, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was just a function of what the aircraft could do, basically. Nice jet to fly. The hunter? Mm. Oh, it was probably the Rolls-Royce of aeroplanes. Um, it was incredibly smooth um, and, and amazingly responsive. And you could fly it down to, you still had uh, control over the aircraft at very low speeds. So. Mm -hmm. Now, on our Mark 9, you've been working on a number of uh, the restoration aspects of that, including the gun pack. Tell us about that. Yes, it, the, uh, it was a, a four uh, gun pack, four 30 millimeter cannons, Aiden cannons. And uh, what was unique about the gun pack was that uh, when you actually brought the aircraft in for a, a servicing or, you know, a turnaround after a, a, or in, in exercise or in, during uh, wartime, the whole gun pack came out uh, uh, and the barrels stayed in the aircraft. And uh, then you, you took the, gun, the whole gun pack out and put the whole new gun pack in. And you could do that in a very short time scale and the same time scale that it took to refuel the aircraft. Uh, it had a very great, uh, interest, or an interesting feature, that uh, when they first started to fire the guns on the Hunter, the, uh, the links that held the rounds together, the 30 millimeter rounds, like on a machine gun belt, uh, started to fly up and hit the underside of the aircraft, which caused damage. Uh, so they had to put collector tanks on the side of it. Uh, and these collector tanks were a, a, a very attractive feature on the Hunter, but when they were put on, they there was a, a very well-endowed British actress by the name of Sabrina, uh, and those uh, collector tanks were forever afterwards called Sabrinas. I see. Yeah. We'll leave that to the <laughs> listener's imagination. <laughs> Let's move on to the Hawker Sidley Harrier. The Harrier was, was uh, one of those aircraft that was like a, a lot of the aircraft in, in British design. It was a private venture by the Hawker Company. And... Um, it was really in response to uh, a NATO requirement for uh, an aircraft that could operate off unprepared strips uh, and as close to the vertical as possible. 
Now, the British government was very lackadaisical in actually uh, supporting any sort of uh, aircraft like that. They let the industry get on with it themselves. Yep. Um, there were so, so many demands, social demands, on the British government at the time as well. Um, and they didn't see a need for uh, a, a dedicated aircraft of that type. So Hawkers went ahead and, and developed the, hunter, the Harrier. And it was originally called the 1127, P1127 prototype. And uh, as a consequence of that testing, uh, Bill Bedford was the chief test pilot, a very famous British test pilot. The British government got quite interested in it. And it quite quickly proved itself to be a remarkable uh, piece of equipment. Uh, they decided to form what was called the Tripartite Squadron because now the Americans and, and the Germans got interested in it. And the RAF, the American Air Force, and the German Air Force formed the Tripartite Squadron. Uh, and they had uh, 12 of these aircraft, which were built by Hawker Siddeley as a proof of concept. Um, the proof of concept was, was very successful, but as a consequence of the Tripartite, the RAF decided to go ahead and order the Harrier. I'll just tell you an interesting story. There was a uh, a, a German who was in charge of the British, uh, the German side of the tripartite arrangement. I'm just trying to think of his name. I think his name is Alhorn. He had a hundred and or three hundred and one uh, victories in World War Two, and so he was now the colonel in charge of the German side of things. And he dropped one of the 1127s um, and broke the undercarriage. And his comment to the ground crew when he got out of it was. Uh, now I have 301 allied aircraft. <laughs> uh. And, I mean, it's an ingenious design, isn't it? Uh, rotating the, the thrust so that you have different vectors. Was, was that an original idea or had that been done before? Um, it was an interesting concept. Um, the Americans during the 50s were playing around with all sorts of different concepts. In fact, so were the, the, the Germans as well and the French about the best way to actually lift a fighter into the air. And just to get back to that NATO requirement, uh, after World War II aircraft of course got faster and faster and they needed longer and longer runways and prepared runways and with the introduction of nuclear weapons, storage areas and, and, and so on which had to be highly fortified. Um, and that meant that airfields were very vulnerable and it was the NATO requirement that uh, the Harrier actually fulfilled in the end to operate from completely unprepared strips. Yeah. So hidden away in a forest, uh, in a clearing, it could operate? Yes, what we used to uh, operate it off grass. I mean, if you could drive a, a Land Rover over a piece of grass at, at 40 miles an hour and not lose control of it, you could effectively fly a Harrier off it. So what we used to do is you, you'd use uh, a strip of about 300 metres long, uh, and with that you could pretty well take off a full load. Wow. Um, yeah. So for people who don't know, describe what a Harrier does. How does it achieve that? Okay, the, the Pegasus engine um, exhausted its gases through four nozzles, which were on the centre line of the aircraft, in the centre of gravity. Uh, the forward nozzles uh, were, were directly linked to the compressor, and the rear nozzles came from the burnt gas area of the aircraft. But the thrust from uh, both sides of the engine was enough sufficient to get the aircraft vertically airborne, okay? or to be used to accelerate the aircraft very fast. So what you did, you, it, there was only one extra control in the, the cockpit, and that was the nozzle lever, which sat adjacent to the throttle. 
Um, so the, you could control the angle of the nozzle uh, in, adjust, you know, in juxtaposition with the, the throttle. So point the nozzles down, you can go vertically, point them at a 45-degree angle, and you sort of angling up at that angle and point them horizontally, and you're in level flight. Yes. So what, what we would do is we would accelerate the aircraft very fast with the nozzles in the fully aft position, and then you'd reset a, a novel position, and uh, when you got to a set speed, you'd pull the nozzles back to that uh, stop, and the combination of the jet lift and the wing lift that was then being produced, uh, the aircraft would leap into the air and accelerate very rapidly until it was fully wingborne. So in doing that, you, you could get the, the aircraft airborne with a, a pretty heavy load. If you did a vertical takeoff, of course, the simple mechanics of lifting a device that weighs 12,000 pounds and produces 21,000 pounds of thrust, you just do the equation and the, the difference is with the amount that you can actually carry. It sounds inherently dangerous, is it? It, it had some dangerous features in the early days. We, we had a few uh, accidents with it. Um, no, it, it was not inherently dangerous. Um, you basically, if, if you had a, an engine problem, the Martin Baker seat was a very effective seat. And while we had quite a few accidents that were caused by a particular control feature when you were bringing the aircraft into the hover, um, it could very quickly get away from you. But we had devices that increasingly stopped that particular problem. So the seat you mentioned is the ejector seat? Yes, the Martin Baker ejector seat. And were there a lot of ejections from Harriers? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not You weren't one of them? No. no. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the physics involved in maintaining stability just sound quite challenging to me. But you say it was... They, overcome, they overcame those, and it was stable and reliable. Yes, in, when the, to, to come back to the way we operated it, we, it was a stow. We, we did a, a short takeoff and a vertical landing. And uh, as Bill Bedford so rightly put it at the Paris Air Show, um, it's better to stop an aircraft and land than land and stop. So <laughs> uh, one of the big problems when you land an aircraft is the Stopping dissipation. It. Yes, yeah, the dissipation of energy, basically. I mean, one of the things that we used to do was operate right up in the forward edge of the battle area with, with the British Army, in, in Germany in particular. But we did have a responsibility for supporting NATO all the way through from northern Norway round to Turkey and, and, and Cyprus. Um, in, in Germany, we had three squadrons in direct support of the British Army. And we would go out and we would actually be on the forward edge of the battle area. So you were within five minutes striking. Of, of enemy positions, mm. which gave the, um, the British Army a tremendous capability. Are they still in use? Uh, they are with the United States Marines. Uh, the, the British Air Force decided, or the RAF decided, or the British government decided in 2010 to simply withdraw them at very short notice. I see. The original uh, Harrier, GR1 and GR3, um, had increasing capabilities, but it still was limited by the size of the wing, the amount you carry is uh, proportional to the area. Uh, so uh, the, there was a, a proposal put forward uh, in, in the early 70s uh, that they would have a big wing area. And the British government, once again, designed uh, a big wing area, but it, was, it had a metal wing, and the Americans uh, designed one, the McDonnell Douglas company designed one, uh, which had a, a carbon epoxy fibre wing. 
And in the end, the British government decided not to go with that design. And it was then that the Americans took over the lead design and and manufacture of the aircraft with the big wing Harrier. Uh, I suppose many people may remember footage of the Falklands conflict and seeing the Harriers in action of uh, British aircraft carriers at the time. Um, They had a a big role to play, didn't they, at that time? They certainly did. Um, It was interesting that uh, when the... uh, the Navy started to lose its, its carriers, uh, and it had uh, phantoms and buccaneers flying off those carriers. Uh, there was the, the big fleet thinking and the, uh, the desire amongst a lot, a lot of senior admirals that uh, the only way to operate aircraft was in big wings. So they were a little bit cagey about getting the Harrier, but when they lost their aircraft carriers, the Harrier suddenly became a very attractive feature. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Hawke Siddeley then designed the FR-1, which is a fighter reconnaissance version of the Harrier, had a slightly different cockpit, and it was navalized. Uh, in other words, the uh, magnesium and, and other features of the aircraft were changed. Um, and, of course, the Harrier uh, design for the Navy came out of that one. And that was because of what operations at sea? Yes. The magnesium was cor- susceptible to corrosion? Very susceptible, yeah. Yeah, okay. John, this has been delightful, and it's only been a very quick uh, toe in the water, uh, you know, of your career, which we would love to hear more of and we will look for in the oral history project that's coming up with QAM. But for now, if somebody wants to meet up with you, you said you're here on a Tuesday normally uh, as a guide, and um, they could ask for you by name and you'd be around the place or they can see you somewhere and they can hear your dulcet British tones guiding them about um you've also i I just think people should know you've spent a lot of time and effort producing uh, a history of the raaf which currently is displayed in hangar one on the large screen there uh, a a rolling display so if you came in you could sit uh, on a comfortable chair there and watch the very succinct and useful history of the raaf now that it's uh had its centenary and uh, we're very grateful to you for that and for all the work you do as a guide. Thank you, John, and thank you so much for talking to me today. A great pleasure. Thank you, Gary. So that's episode one of Mac One Season 2. Thanks for being with us. Once again, let me remind you that we are open seven days a week, every day except Christmas Day and Easter Friday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., We're at Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra, just across the road from the Caloundra Aerodrome. We would love to see you. Come in and visit us soon and let us know that you've heard about the museum from the podcast because we love to think that you who are listening might also come and meet us as well. Thank you for listening. We'll be back each week for the next uh, 16 weeks or so for Season 2. We look forward to your company. Bye for now.